Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. So hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today I have a very special guest with us from overseas, which is absolutely fantastic that we can bring authors on from far, far away. And his name is Lucas Dein. So Lucas, would you like to say hello to our listeners? Hello, listeners. Thank you, Vicki, for having me on. I really appreciate you uh, allowing me to come on and talk and connect with your listeners. It's such a great podcast that you run. And um, I've been really excited to do this. We've had a, a lot of scheduling, kind of back and forth and, and you know, last minute, uh, me waking up at 1 a.m., worried that I'm going to oversleep my my 4.30 a.m. appointment with you. But finally, we got we got connected and it's, uh, it's nice to, to be able to talk with you. Oh, Lucas, that is so much dedication. I appreciate you doing that. So listeners, let me clue you in a little bit. So Lucas, uh, first, tell us where you're at, where where you're residing at, so people understand there's that difference of time zones. <laughs> I live on an island at the very southern tip of the Korean Peninsula called Jeju. Um, so I live in South Korea, and uh, I think it's like a 15-hour difference or something like that, 14-hour, something like that. Yeah, so that's why, so he's not technically a Pacific Northwest author, but I'm happy to bring him on because he has a fascinating backstory to his life. And also um, his work is very interesting to me. So, you know, I get to bend the rules. <laughs> so, um, so awesome. So for you right now, it's like 4.30 in the morning. It's uh, Saturday, 4.30 in the morning for you. And it's a Friday afternoon for me. So we appreciate you getting up early to, to share time with us. Um, tell us a little bit about your backstory because I read it on your bio and I'll make sure that your website is um, on the show notes so everybody else can go and, and um, read your bio. But tell us just a little bit about your background because how you got to South Korea, I'm sure is very fascinating. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really long story. There. <laughs> okay, the abbreviated um, version. <laughs> well, um, I... I guess I'll start when I was in, I was going, I was attending George Washington university, um, for graduate school. And, uh, I had just, and I had just finished my, my doctorate in psychology. Um, and, uh, I was doing my residency at the VA hospital in Washington, DC. Mm -hmm. And, um, I would, my specialty at that time was I was, I was working a lot with, um, PTSD, uh, patients with PTSD that were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I was doing a lot of work um, kind of in and around uh, primary care and, and the ER. And uh, it was wonderful work. I loved working with the vets. They're wonderful people. And, but it was just, it was too much for me. It was, mm-hmm. it was heavy. Uh, I needed a little bit of a change at that time. I was 27, 28 years old, I think. Uh, now I'm, pushing 40. So that's really old. You're still a baby. Trust me. (laughs) I'm on the other side of 40. So (laughs) I, uh, I, I needed a change and uh, I wanted to go travel. I wanted to see the world. Um, and so, uh, I kind of just got this crazy hair to travel to the Balkans. My, my family is, uh, my mom's side of the family is Greek. Mm -hmm. Uh, I chose that destination. It got fixated in my brain. I said, you know, I'm just going to go do it. And I sold all of my stuff. 
I, you know, finished my residency. So I didn't have a job. I was waiting tables to uh, earn enough money to pay for my plane ticket and have a few dollars in my, in my pocket when I got there. But after I, I sold all my stuff, packed it into two bags, I think it was, bought a one-way ticket over to Macedonia. I had no job. I had two emails. <laughs> so I had, I had actually sent out hundreds, it felt like hundreds of emails. Yeah. Probably closer just to 100 emails to all <laughs> sorts of places in the region, to places in Serbia and Greece and Albania and Macedonia. No replies whatsoever. I was in Washington, D.C., so I even decided to go to some of the embassies. Yeah. Yeah. Very naive. I was very naive at the time thinking that that was <laughs> That's the route to go, right? <laughs> Looking back on it, it wasn't really the route to go, but I got two responses and they were both in Macedonia. One uh-huh. was it. Uh, Scopia, the capital, and it was someone working in a clinic. And she said, sure, great. You want to come volunteer your time for six months? That'd be great. And, you know, I'm, I'm going, well, I kind of want a job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not a volunteer position. And then the other one was from a university in a town called Tetovo. And so, uh, you know, I just said, F it. I'm going to get on the plane. So I take it, got off the plane. I had never traveled overseas in my life before that moment. Oh my goodness. Um, and that is a terribly long flight <laughs> to have to experience. A terribly long flight. And Macedonia is not necessarily uh, the most developed country and the most oh. Western friendly country in, yeah, in Europe. Exactly. And, uh, you know, to make a long story short with that, I, I, I took the first place I went was the university. The, uh, the, the woman that had answered my email and, um, that I met at the door, um, crazy enough, ended up translating my book that I'm going to talk about later. So it was like, it was like this crazy circle of life, sort of bizarre situation. (laughs) Um, and I got a job and I worked there, um, for two years and absolutely loved it. Ended up learning Albanian and, uh, falling in love with the culture and the people there, um, both Albanian and Macedonian, just Balkan culture in general. Um, because the town I lived was, uh, an Albanian speaking town. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, and you knew no Albanian when you went there, like none. Zero. I actually, cause I was like, I'm moving to Macedonia and yeah. you know, this is me being incredibly naive just about <laughs> everything. I, I should have been, I mean, I had been through a lot. I'd been on a lot of classes been through a lot of education. You'd think that I wouldn't have known more, but I didn't. And I well, thought education that, doesn't mean knowledge in the world, right? <laughs> no man, it doesn't. And I, uh, I thought I was, I'm going to Macedonia, so I should learn Macedonian. So I actually was taking some, some private lessons. I would say maybe 10 private lessons. Oh my goodness. Where I left were to learn Macedonian. But then I get there and I move to a town that's 90% Albanian, at an Albanian speaking university yeah. where they don't want to hear me speak in Macedonian. Uh, even though it was still, the Macedonian was still useful later on. So I had to end up learning Albanian instead. Oh my goodness. Um, which is, you know, such a fascinating and beautiful language. But so I, I worked there for two years and um, then I went back home for a year to be with my family um, and still unmarried at this time. And mm-hmm. then I decided, you know, I want to go back overseas. So I take, you know, a nothing job in China. So I go to China. Wow. Where I meet my oh. wife cultural difference like yeah, night and day right you're just going from one extreme to the other <laughs> that's that's apparently how i like to do things <laughs> and, 
And then uh, I go to China and meet my wife, who's from Tennessee. So oh I meet my wife from Tennessee in China. She oh, actually awesome. was one of the people that trained me there. And, you know, I love my beautiful wife. We had such a, she, we had such a great time in China. And then we leave China. We go to Kuwait. Hmm. So then another cultural yeah. jump. And so yeah. we live in Kuwait. And then from Kuwait, um, I go back. We together, her and I went back to Macedonia um, oh. to the same town before. So we had, a, I had a second stint there. And then um, we left there and came to South Korea because we realized that the healthcare in Macedonia and the environment that they have for raising children is terrible. And mm-hmm. we wanted to start a family. So uh, we moved out here and it's, we've been here for, this is our sixth year. Oh, nice. Here in South Korea. And we absolutely love it. Both of our, we have, I have two young children, or two young boys. Um, and uh, both of them were born on the island. And oh, nice. My brother lives out in South Korea. His wife's South Korean. So we have a really nice family. Oh, that's, a, that's a lot. That's the, if you could believe that that's the shortened version of the story <laughs> of how I got here. <laughs> well, uh, well, I'm sure in between there is a tremendous amount of other little stories because being an American that absolutely has never traveled before to take that huge jump like you did is brave and very, very brave. (laughs) So I commend you for it. Um, And also very naive. (laughs) Extremely naive. Now I'm a little bit more seasoned. uh, And I think we all, hopefully we can all get there as we're getting closer to 40 and then past 40. Exactly. more season that we were when we were 27. Oh, I would hope so. Right. That would be the goal. (laughs) Is that we're, and then we can pass that beauty on to our children. So, yeah. So, so very cool. What an absolutely fascinating story. Um, and that's one reason why I wanted to bring you on. I love to bring on authors, um, that have just a whole different perspective of life. You know, we, I, I regionally go around the Pacific Northwest, but you actually found me and said, I want to come on the podcast. And I'm like, score. I like this. (laughs) Oh yeah. I, um, I, and the the way that I found you is through uh, listening to an interview you did with Brian Birnbaum from oh, Dead yeah. Rabbits. Uh, yeah. I love I love the 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 website they have and the, the the stuff that they're promoting, the stuff they're doing. And so I saw that he had done your podcast, and I listened to it, and I was like, "Well, I can I can ask." So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I can bend rules because it's my podcast. <laughs> it, was, it's, it was such a cool thing. And, and then I looked more into it and I was like, this is definitely something I want to see if I can get on the show with Vicki. Awesome. Well, I love it. Well, let's dig into the whole writing journey. Now, were you writing the whole time you were traveling? Did you keep journals? How did you start with the writing process? Because your book is really specific and we'll definitely jump into that um, because I want to dive into that topic for sure. But did you, were you always a writer? Were you kind of doing it? And then... I, I think that that I always enjoyed writing, but I never really took it seriously. I was I played um, I played baseball when I was younger in, in in college, and that was you know something that just kind of consumed you. And you know when you're a college athlete, being a writer is not one of those things you're talking about with your friends. No, so, it's kind of not on know, the radar. <laughs> it, it wasn't something that I was that I ever you know pursued or or. or went after but I think it was once I got to graduate school and I was doing a lot of technical writing I was like I realized you know I'm I'm okay at this mm-hmm. like I, I I get it intuitively I get it and then um I didn't actually start trying to write anything until I was traveling in Macedonia and I was living alone at that time 
the first time I was there. And, you know, that was back before Netflix and all this crazy stuff. So I had, um, a computer that had, uh, two movies, which were into the wild and, uh, uh, the dark Knight. And oh then goodness. I had Such the full, <laughs> yeah, I had the full three seasons of Arrested Development. Oh, well, those are great. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm telling you, I've watched Arrested Development at least 15 times every episode. So I okay. had those options to to watch TV, which was, you know, awful after a while when you're living by yourself in a place yeah. where there is no TV. Yeah. And I had no internet in the home, so I couldn't like go online or do anything. Oh, my goodness. And so... I would go out to coffee shops and cafes and, and I would sit and I just started writing what I, some observations, just jotting things down in note in, in, in a notebook. Um, and then, um, you know, my, my psychology brain started analyzing what I was seeing and yeah. it started, I started noticing different things about, um, the culture that I was, uh, very deeply immersed in. And, uh, from there, I started, uh, I think, kind of getting the idea that maybe I wanted to, to do to write some fiction related mm-hmm. to what I was, and really, honestly, it was a the big kicker for me. And and I I did a, a guest blog post on Dead Rabbits for this. Was I went over to Israel? I visited Israel, and um, I think that all those experiences that I had there, witnessing, you know, just the highs and lows of humanity. Yeah. It, it just struck me so deeply that it kind of brought out some of that creative uh, um, spirit in mm-hmm, me. And mm-hmm. I was able to start writing poetry and writing um, short stories. And then that, you know, immediately I just, once I got back to um, Macedonia, back to Tetsubo, mm-hmm. I started diving into, I want to write a book, never yeah. written it before, and I'm going to start. And that's... Okay. So tell us about the topic of the book, because it's a very um, unknown topic to most Western culture, right? So, so tell us about how you stumbled on that and then made the decision to write about it. Cause I can imagine it's also um, emotionally charged a bit too. So it is, uh, you know, if someone wants to read about a very obscure uh, event in history, this is the book to read. Uh, The themes that were that I talk about and then uh, some of the implications for later is not so obscure and people can definitely identify with them. Um, but the book is, uh, set in 1902 mm-hmm. in, um, in Macedonia and it wouldn't be called Macedonia at the time. It was a, it was an Ottoman province, uh, province called Romelia. The, so set in 1902 in Macedonia and it's, um, the, at that point in time, the, the great powers are trying to fight for control over the Balkans. Um, the Ottoman empire is dying at that point in time. And all these, um, Balkan tribes are, um, starting to look at the landscape saying, you know, what's this place going to look like, uh, after the Ottomans die and after the great powers have just decided their fate. So my story is about, uh, a young Albanian man who works for the British consulates in, um, in Macedonia and he is pulled into a conspiracy that is hatched by the Brits and the Russians um, to thwart the German railway that is being built from Berlin to Baghdad because the, 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 the Brits and the Russians realize that if there's a railway 
built from Berlin to Baghdad, then um, Europe is in deep, deep trouble uh, because the German war machine would have all their resources coming from uh, the Persian Gulf. And um, without giving too much of my story away, it's basically... <laughs> Don't give it all away. We want to read it. <laughs> it's about... It's about a young Albanian man, and he and he gets pulled into a conspiracy that involves uh, Greek revolutionaries, uh, Bulgarian revolutionaries, um, Serbs, mm. and um, obviously Macedonians, and then Albanians. And what it's really trying to explore is it's trying to take one event, which is, uh, and I don't want to give too much away, but it's, yeah, it, yeah. In the book. it's just this one event um, where... Uh, I want to, I want people to see this one event from all the different perspectives of the uh -huh. Balkan. Because a lot of the time when people read about Balkan conflict in, in the West through Western media, people are vilified and they're, you uh -huh. see people as monsters and you know, these yeah. genocidal maniacs are going yeah. in there and butchering people. And, um, I found after speaking with these people that, I mean, it's not like, you know, I'm reading it in history books. They're telling yeah. me the stories yeah. from the different conflicts that they're having there that um, it's a very fine line to go from neighbor to yeah. uh, killer. Yeah. And it's, it's a line that we can all cross very easily. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Important for us to be able to look at an event from all the different perspectives, and then maybe we can start empathizing with where they're coming from, and um, not necessarily saying my book is you know going to provide any sort of key to solving these conflicts, but at least at least people can better understand nationalism, they can better understand mm -hmm. conflict, and they can definitely better understand what it's like to be an Albanian in Macedonia, which is a yeah. very complex and difficult uh, and little and very little understood from a western culture perspective in any way shape or form you know we we are given such a version from media that if you don't have people in your life that are from that culture that can speak to you what it's really like you'll believe what you see right <laughs> and so so i think it's fantastic let me ask you this question um so when you first got there and people knew you were american did you find them honestly opening up to you right away did you how did you start this conversations and the research part of it because i'm interested in that part because i feel like your research was probably a lot of interviews and talking with the people that lived through or their parents or grandparents lived through those experiences yeah there's um well it, it it's kind of a two-part there's two types of you know quote unquote talking with somebody and hearing their story when i first arrived um, everyone there is, you know, obviously wary of a foreigner. So mm -hmm. there's a certain layer and that's everywhere you go. So, yeah, you know, there's yeah. a third layer there of, they're going to present to you a certain face that Absolutely. maybe mm -hmm. they want that you want to see or that they want you to see. Um, and definitely with the Slavic population, Macedonians, uh, Serbs, Bulgarians, um, there was a, a lot more, uh, paranoia on their side because, mm -hmm. They have all, at times been the uh, born the brunt of some very at times flawed uh, U.S. policy, and so yes. mm -hmm. without putting a lot of judgment in that, they, there is some resentment there for sure. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Now, on the other hand, the Albanians absolutely love Americans. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, there because of a lot of the policy that uh, American policy in the region has benefited Albanians. And so they're going to put on two different faces in the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. And so you talk to them and they're going to give you the talking points that their cultures. Yeah, absolutely. Like, they're, yep. in, they're engaged in the information war uh, between cultures. And so they're using you as a way to like, I'm, I'm going to give you information so that maybe you go tell friends that will support my people. Yeah, exactly. The surface, the surface level stuff, right? That yeah, you get. Surface level stuff. <laughs> surface level stuff. But then... And that, you know, that stuff I can read. I mean, I can go to any book and, and I can read about that stuff. Um, the real, the real research was done once I really got into the circles with people yeah. and I was invited into their home Yeah, and they, they really tell you about their experience. And, yeah. um, you know, regrettably, I didn't have as deep friendships, uh, with Macedonians as I did with Albanians, um, you know, I met a lot of amazing Macedonian people. I just was spending more time with Albanians mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, the, the, the family, um, the main character's name is Jan Akhmeti and his, um, his family and he is based upon um, people and a specific family uh, that, that I was, is one of my best friends still to this day. Oh. And so I think I, I got, there is a level, there is a certain level of authenticity that, mm-hmm. that maybe some other novels might not have. Some other historical fiction novels may not have because I mean, this is actual people that, yeah. that it's based on. And so that your, your question was my research for this. Um, and most of it was sitting down, talking to people, hearing their reality. And then me being a psychologist, you know, I, mm-hmm. I have a, a, a different, I hear different things when people say things to mm-hmm. me. And so mm-hmm. I was able to go even deeper with them with some more probing questions. Yeah. And then once I had really solidified my, their trust in me, yeah, uh, and we had, you know, real friendship, then I was permitted to ask those questions. Exactly. And I was so yeah I love it and I love the fact that um I mean I I believe that our life is a journey and our experiences help us you know when we become authors we get to draw upon so many great experiences in our life and you being that psychologist was probably a really great inroad for you to build those relationships and trust quickly or maybe another person in that experience wouldn't have that you know it would have taken years I mean in two years you developed some pretty great I can imagine relationships and and um so I love that I think it's a great story I'm I'm writing historical fiction but way back historical fiction you know Queen Elizabeth the first so I don't have firsthand accounts if I could go back and do firsthand accounts that would be amazing because as also I'm a librarian so for me firsthand accounts you know first documents those kind of things that's t- that's telling such the most powerful story so yeah, you were you were blessed <laughs> how hard how hard is writing historical fiction yeah, it's like getting the details right making yeah. sure everything flows so that you're creating a world that's believable in the past. Yep. Yeah. I honestly did not know what I was getting into when I oh, started no. this. I was like, I, oh, I know culture. I can write about it. And then I was spending all this time on researching, well, what kind of rifle would they carry? And <laughs> I'm going to write a battle scene. And so um, how many shots were in each clip? And yep. if there were 30 guys charging at him, would he be able to fend off 30 guys with two men, three men, four men? How many bullets will come out? Uh, all this crazy stuff that if you 
if you read historical fiction, I don't, uh, and I'm, I guess I'm speaking to your listeners, appreciate the authors that yeah. are able to create something that's authentic because it's hard. And you is now that you're writing historical fiction, I'm sure. And especially a time period that is so much more difficult to identify with than 1902, Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. I, I I don't know if I'll ever write historical fiction again, honestly. Yeah, it, it is definitely a challenge. And it's interesting because I had, for me, I had the storyline in my head and I had it plotted out. And then when I started to write, I'm like, it has to be accurate. I mean, cause that's just the librarian in me. So I have spent more time in the research aspect. And like you said, for me, like for one scene that I did, I did a wedding scene, but I'm not in the time period where I'm around the court. So Queen Elizabeth's court was definitely written about a lot because she was this interesting character and a lot of historical documents are about her court. I'm writing about somebody that's not even in the court, right? An everyday person. So I had to do tons of research on like, what, what would they be eating? You know, how how would the a wedding feast be for somebody in that um, level of... of um, in society, it was fascinating, but it took it takes so much time. I've been working on the book for a year, at least this one book. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, but for you, how cool that you could talk to people and, and feel it because you're there, at least mm-hmm. still in history in enough time frame between those years, you know, you're there in the culture, in the time. I think that'd be fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely a big advantage. And, and, you know, I, like I said, I don't think I'll ever write historical fiction again yeah. because I don't think I'll get that same connection with the culture that yeah. I did with, with this. So, I mean, I guess I, I could write historical fiction about the United States, but you could, but it's boring. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, with all of your traveling, I can't imagine. I'm sure you'll find something else, you know, that is just as stimulating. So let's jump off now into your publishing aspect because I, I love to have authors share a little bit about their publishing journey. Um, so tell us, you know, are you independent published? Are you uh, self-published? You know, kind of tell us how that journey is and, and how you're published. I am self-published. Uh, this is the only book I've ever written and uh, it is very difficult. It yeah. is very difficult. I, you know, I have, I had all the, of course, all these naive ideas, um, the naive ideas about how it's going to work and how, you know, you can promote your book and how people will immediately want to read it and yeah. they'll, they'll review it. And it, it was very different than what I thought it was. I, I, I've been, I've been um, lucky that uh, I, it's, I think for a first time self-published author, the book's doing okay. Yeah. Uh, and I have some reviews. Um, I know a lot of people are you know, worried about getting, you know, five, six reviews. I've, I, I've had some. Um, and it's just, it's been, it's been difficult getting people interested in the book. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. But I'm not, I don't, I'm not writing to make this a career. I'm a teacher. Yeah. So uh, I, this is something that uh, allows me to stimulate my brain mm-hmm. outside of work. And, um, you know, I, I'm going to open up uh, a publishing company with myself, my brother and another friend. Oh, and I'm going to cool. start editing books and doing different things with, um, with them and with, with people that I know and with, with other indie authors, because, you know, after my experience, I know that 
man, this is hard. And yeah. if you don't have someone that's been there before helping you, yeah. even if it's someone, even if it's me and I've only had one, I've published one more book than you. Yeah, exactly. You, I, you're not going to make all those same mistakes. So I, that is something that I'm, that I'm going to get into when, you know, speaking to your, your question about publishing is uh, it's been hard and I'm, uh, but I've learned a lot. It's been super fun. Yeah. Uh, and it's very uh, freeing because mm-hmm. you, you can do whatever you want. If you want to promote yourself that day, you can do that. If you don't yeah. want to do it for a week, you can do that. And uh, it's, it's been incredibly satisfying and fun. Yeah. And I love, there's so many points that you say that I love. So I don't know how many of my podcasts you listen to. This has only been going on for about 18 months, the podcast itself, because one day I woke up and said, okay, I have these stories and I'm going to write them and I'm going to get them published, but I don't know what the heck I'm doing. So I started talking, just talking to authors around me, around the my area that I heard were authors, tracked them down. And I'm like, some of their information is so great because this journey has changed tremendously in the last 10 years where you can self-publish and you can do well, or, you know, it's a part of such a creative aspect of it, but it's a whole business. It's not just you write a book and then, you know, you're done. It's a whole business. I'm like, there's so much great information. I'm going to do a podcast. And I woke up one day and I looked at my husband, I'm going to do a podcast. He's like, you don't know anything about producing a podcast. I'm like, okay, cool. I'll learn. <laughs> so, like I need a mic, I need a computer. And he's like, okay, let's go for it. And the podcast has taught me so much. I've interviewed so many authors like you that every single author has imparted something to me to encourage me to keep going, to look at different kinds of publishing. You know, this, the journey has been so wonderful. So that's why I love this podcast. I mean, it's all about me learning how to do this. And I just happen to share it with anybody that listens. (laughs) Oh, it's awesome. And, you know, and I think that's one thing about uh, writers that are not, um, that are just, you know, and I would say kind of a broad category of indie authors is that uh, they are so helpful and so supportive of each other. I, and it's one of the reasons why I want to do something to actually give back to, to the community because, you know, you go on, you go online and people are willing just to give their time to do things for free. Uh, it helps them. I mean, it helps promote their book and, 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 you know, you're going to have a great medium once you finish your book to be able to spread it because you're going to have so many people already that are interested in what you're doing. And that is a benefit of it, but it's also the community is just amazing. And everyone gets the fact that this is hard and we need to help each other. And, um, because we don't have these big, huge marketing armies mm-hmm. behind us, in front of us, we've got to kind of got to hold each other's hands and yep. help out a little bit. It sounds kind of cliche, but that's really that's really the truth. And and it's the beautiful truth about indie publishing that I love, that I'm very much drawn to, is helping each other out and giving back. You know. Or I don't believe anybody should do anything alone. I think we need to all be a community and help each other. So that's great. So let's make a commitment. When you get your publishing company up and going and you get some authors, send them my way. I'll bring them on the podcast for you guys. <laughs> I've got a couple. And I'm the, the first guy that, that one of the first guys that I, that's going to uh, write a book for us. He's one of my good friends who has traveled with to 60 countries in, in uh, 60 months. Oh, that's and that's insane. Rode, a, <laughs> rode a bike, rode a bike from Utah to Patagonia. A oh my God. Bike. 
So no way. yeah, well, yeah. when he, we got to have him on, that's just fantastic. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> okay, yeah. Lucas, yeah. let's dive into your story. Cause I know my listeners are saying, okay, Biggie, stop rambling. Let's get into the book. So set us up for your reading. Tell us a little bit, whatever backstory you want to share um, uh, before you read, you know, what you, what clues you can give us without giving us too much. Cause I really want my listeners to be like intrigued and go and get your book too and read it. Um, and while you do that, I'm going to go quiet as everybody knows because those rowdy dogs of mine. <laughs> uh, so I, to give a little bit of a, the background, just so you understand all the, the terms and stuff. Um, when I'm reading is that this, the, the event that is central to the book is actually a conflict between um, two Slavic groups within the same Slavic group. So there's there's one uh, terrorist group that is fighting. Uh, terrorist is a loose term, but it's they're fighting the Ottoman occupation of their land, and they are called VMRO or Vimero. And uh, within that group, uh, two factions have split out, and one is uh, for the the ethnic Macedonians that believe that they are the quote unquote sons of the soil, which is the name of the book. They're the sons of the soil and that uh, Macedonia is for them as ethnic Macedonians. The other half of this uh, uh, Slavic group that's fighting the Ottoman occupation is a pro Bulgarian group. They believe that Macedonia needs to become a part of the Bulgarian empire. And so the great powers uh, being uh, the British and the Russians have found a way through, you'll see in the book, have found a way to manipulate this group to have a battle between each other so that they can destabilize um, the eastern portion of Macedonia so that they can't get a railway through. The, the, the Germans can't put a railway through. So I think that's pretty clear. And so the names of the two groups that are fighting each other are the IO, which is the internal organization, and the EO, which is the external organization. So the I, and these are all real groups. These are real people. Um, and so the IO are the Macedonians that are ethnic Macedonians, and the EO are the Bulgarians. So I'm going to start, and it's kind of midway through the book. And it's a chapter that I don't think really gives away much of the plot because I think people will know that there will be battles and stuff and things are going to happen. I'll begin here. Uh, it's about eight pages. So uh, Kirill looked around with eyes that were no longer his. He tried to move his arms and legs, but they belonged to a body he no longer controlled. His mind floated above his breathing corpse and observed the horrors of war. It had been 24 hours since that first battle in Kresna Gorge. Kirill remembered marching with his EO comrades, the day hot and sunny, when the sky had opened up and rained down fire, bullets coming from every direction. Half of his company had gone down in the first five minutes, while the rest had taken cover in the trees closest to the banks of the Struma River. Kirill and his two friends, Grigor and Damian, had escaped and found shelter higher up the mountain, but after the sun had risen, they were ambushed from behind, both of his friends dead in a matter of seconds. He had survived because he had been bent over at the time of the attack, which had taken him out of the line of fire. Kirill laid on his back and recalled the tragic moments before, during, and after his friends were taken from him. He couldn't help it. Of all the faculties that he had lost over the previous 24 hours, only memory remained. Mercy fled, pity hid, hope murdered, 
yet memory held on, the one survivor that he wished to die a quick death. Against his will, he closed his eyes and relived every moment. By the time Carol and his friends had reached the top of the mountain, they were exhausted. In need of rest, they quickly dug out a hovel at the base of a large boulder. That night, all three of them sat back to back to back, sleep and afterthought despite their exhaustion, filled with terror, saying nothing. While they huddled in the dirt hole, Kirill thought about their former lives in Blagoevgrad. All three of them were childhood friends. They had met in primary school and had been inseparable throughout their youth. As they aged, they had remained close, celebrating weddings together, mourning at all the same funerals, sharing the same hopes and dreams for the future. When they had finished secondary school, all three friends decided to become teachers and went to Sofia to train at one of the Bulgarian academies. They had thrived and received many offers from schools all across Macedonia. In the end, though, Kirill had decided to stay in Sofia, whereas Brigger and Damian went west to Kriba, Polanka, and Skopje. Despite their distance, they had regularly exchanged letters, shared what little money they had, and traveled to witness births and baptisms. Then came the EO's call to arms. All three were deeply patriotic, so it was natural for them to answer the EO's call. Grigor and Damian had traveled night and day to reach uh, Blagoevgrad, joining Kirill before they began their fateful march through Kresna Gorge. All three of them had been filled with hope, with the hope and pride of their nation, all three marching to glory. But they were not discussing glory and friendship while they huddled together in their hastily, hastily scratched out hovel. No, instead they trembled and occasionally sobbed, Numb, they stared at the trees before them, flinching at visions of familiar corpses and memories of lies they had taken. Paranoid, they sporadically dry heaved from the nerves that twisted their guts. Kirill shuddered at these memories while he lay on his back surrounded by his dead friends. They were moments in time that would always remain. He banged his head on the dirt and howled at the vultures overhead, but nothing would stop the memories from coming to life. The three of them sat pressed against each other for hours while they waited out the night. Each second a minute... Every minute an hour, Kiro began to believe that the sun would never rise again, that he was already dead and this was punishment for his sins. He felt forever stuck in a single moment of terror. Finally, the morning, pe- the morning sun peaked over the eastern ridge of the gorge. They had survived. Stiff from tension and wet from the morning dew, Kiro and his friends stood up and began to scan their surroundings. For the first time in hours, they were able to turn and look at each other. The men that appeared before Kiro's eyes were not his childhood friends. Instead, he saw two strangers. The flame of life that had once inhabited Grigor and Damian had been snuffed out, their faces drawn and pale, eyes dead and laden with horror. Kirill leaned over and emptied his stomach in shock. Shots rang out. Kirill took cover as bullets hissed overhead and struck his friends, their grunts and screams clear over the gunfire. He could hear I.O. soldiers yelling and approaching his position. In that moment, all he could think about was survival, so, out of desperation, Kirill smeared blood on his face and placed Grigor's limp legs over his chest to hide his breathing. Then he turned to his left and saw Damian, blood pouring from a hole in his neck, still alive. He was missing most of his right forearm. His fingers at the end of his wasted limb twitched and scratched in the dirt. A huge swath of his ribs was exposed to the light. Pure white bone, a shocking anomaly amidst the dirt and blood. Damian tried to speak, but blood poured out of his neck, turning words into faint rattles. His eyes blinked and quivered with shock. After a few moments, the IF soldiers approached and surveyed the aftermath of their ambush. Damian was still making noise, so they shot him in the head. They assumed Kirill and Grigor were already dead, so they holstered their pistols and stood over the corpses in front of them. Then one of the I.O. soldiers spoke. He wished mercy upon the souls of his enemies. His words were shockingly similar to Kirill's own language, and they held no joy or satisfaction. In fact, the soldier's voice had been laden with regret. 
Wrenching himself back into the present, Kirill stopped pounding his head against the dirt and stared at the sky. It had been only moments since the EO soldier, since the IO soldier had spoken those words, yet they still hung in the air above him. What is this madness? What is this madness that Slavic brothers are regretfully killing each other? Before today, Kirill did easy rec- easily reconcile the reasons to kill greater Bulgaria. The glorious dream shared by millions of downtrodden, humiliated Bulgarians. The time had arrived and sacrifices had to be made. The loyal Bulgarian sons of Macedonia had to lay down the foundation of a powerful Bulgarian kingdom that would crush the Greeks, drive out the Serbs, and throw the Albanians into the Adriatic. Kirill recalled all the great Bulgarian philosophers, teachers, and politicians who had called for the common villager to rise. These men were the voice of the people, calling for simple Bulgarians like Kirill, Damian, and Grigor to fight for the fatherland. They had whispered in cafes, cried out in village squares, and discreetly passed out pamphlets in the city, spreading the gospel of revolution. Their words had been simple and clear. Do not let the Turks own you. Do not let the Greeks steal from you. Do not let the Serbs fool you. This is our land. Macedonia and Bulgaria are inseparable. Greater Bulgaria lives. Kirill had been inspired by these new and hopeful words spread among a people who had been trampled by their neighbors and purged of their pride, constricted into a life devoid of hope. He knew that life well. He had seen the Bashibozaks burn villages. He had seen Greek tax farmers exploit his countrymen. He had watched as Serb settlers push their way south. The EO had great men who spoke noble words that resonated with these common experiences, words that gave voice to all of Kirill's most secret feelings of hatred and jealousy. It had been an easy decision to join Vemero and even an easier decision to align himself with the EO. The EO was Bulgarian to the core and led by men of action. They offered more than words and promises. They brought guns and handed out missions. But most of all, it had been an easy decision because the EO, Kirill, and the EO encouraged Kirill's most secret, most private feelings of envy for those who do not share in his suffering. He had no time for the confused Bulgarians who called themselves Macedonian, an absurdity that threatened the viability of MRO. Macedonia and Bulgaria were inseparable, and anybody who stood in the way of achieving this goal was as culpable as the Turks or the Greeks. Now, though, as he lay on his back next to his dead friends, the absurdity of his prior, prior beliefs became painfully clear. After seeing the finality of death, experiencing the inhuman savagery of battle, and encountering the quite human face of his enemy, it had become impossible for Kirill to reconcile why Slavic brothers were killing each other on the battlefield. The words of the EO agitators who had shouted about revolution, freedom, and the glory of greater Bulgaria were deceitful, stripped of honorable intention, and impregnated with personal ambition. Where are those men now? The voice of the people. They are probably safe and comfortable, sipping coffee and enjoying the conversation of their countrymen. I don't see them with a wasted arm or a hole in their neck. I don't see them choking on death. These men, so convinced of their righteousness, had never actually picked up a rifle and experienced the filth of battle. Instead, they validated their role in Vimero by splitting hairs and inventing a crisis. Then they covered the crisis with ethnic gunpowder and waited for the ignorance of hate to spark the fires of war. But isn't this how it always is in Macedonia? Small differences made huge by tiny men with hidden agendas? The machinations of a few translated into the sentiment of an entire people, pushed with promises of a glorious past resurrected or the threat of cultural annihilation. Kirill now knew the reality of their wars. Confused soldiers killing confused soldiers. Legions of men forced to abandon their humanity in order to silence the din of ambivalence raised by their innate sense of decency. Each and every soldier's sense of reason confronted by the absurdity of war and, in order to rise to the challenge of mental survival, 
they are forced to recast themselves into horrific edifices of brutality to resolve their moral confusion. In light of this transformation, fellow countrymen who had once drank from the same river and shared the same roads became soulless soldiers who slaughtered each other. They barbarically killed as though their own sins had taken the form of their victims. Kiro laid on his back and banged his head on the ground, cursing the leaders of MRO. He, Grigor, and Damian did not sign up for this. They did not heed the call of greater Bulgaria to kill Slavs. The Greeks, Albanians, and Turks, the goddamn enemies. Slav killing Slav? Why? Why? Words of revolution now. In that hole covered in Damian's blood, he could not remember a single word of nationalist rhetoric while Grigor's limp legs crushed his chest. Worst of all, he could not recall a scrap of propaganda that had differentiated Macedonians from Bulgarians. Lying in that hole, surrounded by the corpses of his, corpses of his friends, Kirill could not remember why it was so important to differentiate. In that moment of clarity, all he could think about was the familiar language spoken by the I.O. soldiers and the fact that both he and his enemy asked for mercy from the same God. Kirill stared at the vultures overhead and begged God to make him whole again, to return him to his body and restore his sense of humanity. He implored God to grant him the means by which to mourn his friends with more than the numbness and indifference of an animal. Most of all, though, Kirill begged God for tears. He begged for tears so that he, at the very least, could weep for his friends. But God did not grant him tears. God forced Kirill to remember. At that moment, a little prick of pain echoed through his body, causing him to look down at his waist. He had not escaped the line of fire. Despair rocked the purgatory in which Kirill's soul had been suspended. My wife will be a widow. My children will lose their father. He swallowed the metallic taste of blood on his tongue, not knowing if it was his blood or the blood of his dead friend. This was the reality of greater Bulgaria. Fatherless children, widows, old generations of young men wiped clean from the earth. Kirill knew he was dying. He beseeched God for a quick death, but in his heart he knew there was no chance his wish would be granted. Kirill was going to die a slow, painful, pitiful death, feeling like an animal with nothing but horrific memories to comfort him. Oh, Lucas, um, absolutely amazing. Beautiful work, beautiful work and heart-wrenching, but it does get to uh, that moment of why are we doing what we're doing, right? <laughs> so yes. Beautifully done. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and listeners, if you're intrigued, definitely go on my show notes and, and find Lucas. Let him know you heard um, about him on the podcast. Get his book. Read it because I think it's a great book, timely book for us. You know, history is so important to re- remember, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I hope, I hope I didn't read too much. I hope it wasn't too long. I think that you Okay. It was perfect, absolutely perfect. I think you needed to read it all the way through so we knew where where, where your heart was going with that. Um, yeah. So before we go, um, give uh, an author like myself who isn't published, she's working her way through, give her or uh, one of our listeners that's in the same boat as me um, one good piece of advice about getting your book out there. Um, my piece of advice would be that when, you, um, when you're ready to, to launch and release and you're filled with excitement, um, be ready that not everybody in your life is going to be as excited about your work as you are. And you're going to, you know, a lot of authors think that I, I I've done this and all my friends are going to drop everything that they're doing to read it and to help you. You will get, most authors will get a lot of help from friends and family, but don't be discouraged if, um, 
you don't get as much excitement back that you're giving into it. That it's a, it's a long process and uh, see it as a long process and don't get discouraged at the beginning when it doesn't go exactly the way you want it to. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that advice. I'm going to take it in today because I've experienced that already with some, you know, bumps in, in the road. And um, so I definitely appreciate it. And Lucas, thanks so much for finding me and coming on the show. I, I loved our interview. It was a great time visiting with you. And when you get some other author friends, let me know. I'll bring them on. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me, Vicki. And um, good luck with the rest of the shows. I'll be listening. Awesome. And uh, to all your <laughs> listeners, thanks for taking the time to to hear me ramble on about a bunch of crazy stuff. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.